All right, Michael, happy Saturday. It is June 26th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. Welcome to the final Saturday of June, almost at the 4th of July. How is summer already a third over and we have yet to have any real fun? I'm still catching up from last year. I haven't learned to that it's okay to have fun really yet, but I guess I should start going into the deep end of the pool now. <laughs> Okay, so safe to assume that you were not at Madison Square Garden this week to see the Foo Fighters for the first ever show back at MSG post-pandemic. I was not. I think the subject of this section is Michael's a loser. Okay, so go ahead. Keep going. (laughs) Not a loser, but it's exciting to see music, theater, all these good things happening again. Our buddy Alan Cumming, I saw, is doing a tour through Australia. Lots of Broadway tickets are are happening. Lots of people are getting very antsy to get the best seats come the fall. So uh, a lot of exciting stuff happening here in New York. And to our listeners abroad and out of the city, we look forward to welcoming you very soon. Please come back. We need you. Ashley will greet you at JFK. She'll... That's me in the sandwich board. That's right. With your black car waiting out in front. <laughs> totally. Michael, I think that you and I were correct last week when we posited that this was going to be the wet, hot New York summer we have been dreaming of. Did you hear about this guy running for city council who leaked his own BDSM videos to the Post? No, I only read family appropriate newspapers. I knew I could throw you off with this one. All right. Well, we have to talk about this quickly before we get into much weightier, more intellectual matters that you're going to find in the issue this week. Let me pull up the story. Hold on. The New York Post, by the way, which is selling baseball caps with the phrase Vax AF on it. It's hot Vax summer. God, I love it. Okay. So there's this candidate for city council. His name is Zach Wiener. No relation to Anthony. Of course. No relation to Anthony. Insert pun here. He's a 26-year-old Gen Zer, and his campaign flagged the footage of his own BDSM session to the Post. And they said they were trying to get ahead of a political rival plotting to use the clip against him. But Wiener came out and said, I am not ashamed. And the video, which I have seen, I'm just going to read this from the Post. It shows him gagged as a leather-clad dominatrix as his ex pours hot wax on him and clips clothespins to his nipples. Wow. And Michael, we're hot and ready to go here in New York. I'm not touching this one. You're you're out there on your own. So I'd like to say you're on the ledge by yourself with this one. All I'm going to say is that when politicians are flagging their own sex tapes as a means of political strategy, you know that New York is back. Are they flagging those sex tapes or flogging those? Ooh, touche. Perhaps a little bit of both. See how I, see how I did that? Kids, that's a little how you, how you write headlines, you know, little caption stuff. You play with words. That's how he got where he is today, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Well, I think we should start with much more somber matters, Michael. This new documentary, speaking of where we were last year versus where we are this year, there's a new documentary called The Surge at Sinai, and it's directed by Johnny Capps and co-produced by the Mount Sinai Health System. And this is a a first-person documentary captured by camera crew during the darkest days of the pandemic last spring. It was filmed in real time at Mount Sinai, and you meet all sorts of characters who are coming in and out of the ER. And here this week is written by John Frude, who is a doctor who came out of retirement, in fact, to do his part and help during the surging days of the pandemic. And... He thinks that this is a really well done film. It's going to be airing on Discovery Plus, but it's a very somber and important reminder of the human toll of of what we've been through in the past year. Yeah, it airs on Discovery Plus on July 1, so just around the corner, narrated by Jean Bon Jovi. But it's just a reminder, you know, as New York steps out of this COVID fog, that between March 11th and May 2nd of last year, there were 18,879 deaths in the city. 
from the virus, which is about 350 deaths a day. So, and by the end of last year in New York and New Jersey alone, almost 700 frontline healthcare workers had died due to the disease. Across the U.S., that number was closer to 3,000. So again, as we're all celebrating and, and sort of reacquainting ourselves with these freedoms, I think it's important just to sort of pause here and look back at the toll that the pandemic took on the healthcare system through the lens of this one hospital in New York City. But you know what is interesting? Actually, we've got another really good piece this week by James Kerchick. And it is, you know, you've heard a lot lately about sort of still searching for the cause of the virus. And if you've been following the news over the last few weeks, the lab leak theory has returned to the top of the ladder in a sense of like for the real cause of the outbreak. And we've got a great piece this week, as I said, by James, who looks at, there is a 79-year-old Englishman and a longtime former science writer for the Times of London who published a piece a couple weeks ago that no one would publish. He finally gave tried to shop it everywhere and everyone turned him down and he finally self-published it on Medium. It was a 10,000 word investigation that he wrote, which questioned the theories around the origin of the virus. And what was fascinating is even up until recently, everyone was saying, and again, despite the fact that Donald Trump was saying this times over the last year, people were saying, no, no, could never have been from a lab. And as recently as May 26, the New York Times science correspondent was sort of saying, these theories have racist roots, they're wrong. But as he says in this meticulous reported piece, he points out some facts that have brought this theory back up to the top and made the establishment rethink what their assumptions are. So for instance, he there's been no proof that this originated within the animal kingdom. After SARS was discovered, within four months, they had found the animal host. But so far, after more than a year now, there's been no animal host that's been discovered. And as he wrote in his piece, the genome shows little diversity because the hallmark of cultures developed in the lab is uniformity. So it's a great piece by Kerchik and just looking at this guy who's made everyone in the scientific community, as well as the New York, Washington establishment, question the origins of the virus. One of the things I found so fascinating about this is how he talks about how scientists were coming to peer pressure which was exacerbated by figures in the press that were disinclined to pursue stories that diverged from this progressive orthodoxy. So scientists, Michael, they're just like us. They too can fall victim to peer pressure. And that was interesting to me. Well, I think it's it's that thing, I think scientists call it bias perception, where you see what you want to see sometimes. And if you, you have to strip away all the noise and focus on just what the data is showing you. Yeah, fascinating piece. And this is a story that continues to develop. We'll be watching it. On a lighter note, Ashley, we have other things in the issue. Phew! What do we have? I don't know. You were just going to go somewhere. Oh, should we talk about the adulterer in the room? Yeah, the adulterer in the room is the elephant in the room this week, right? Yeah. Now we should clarify, not in my room and not in yours. We're talking about Eric Schmidt, who was brought in to be the adult at Google back in 2005. He became a billionaire, but he made the most headlines for his open marriage. Michael, you edited this great piece by Bill Cohan. Whenever I see Bill's byline, I just sit down, pour myself a 17th cup of coffee and get ready because you know it's going to be an addictive read. So tell us all about it. Yeah, as you said, you know, Schmidt was brought in way back in 2005. Google was growing rapidly under Larry Page and Sergey Brin, but it hadn't made any money yet. And so there was pressure from investors to bring in, euphemistically referred to as an adult in the room, bring in some adult supervision. So first they thought, oh, gee, maybe maybe Steve Jobs will take the job. That didn't happen. Eventually, we're introduced to Eric Schmidt, who had been the, was at the time the CEO of a software company that was losing ground to Microsoft. Conversation wasn't going so well until somehow the subject of Burning Man came up, the sort of free-swinging sex fest out in the desert 
near California, of which Sergey and Larry were big fans. Schmidt said, so am I. Well, that was the big icebreaker. So they offered him the job. He gets first year compensation was $250,000 plus a bonus of $300,000. But that all paled in comparison to almost over 14 million shares of Google stock that he got 6% of the company, which paid off handsomely when he helped guide the company to its IPO and also came up with a strategy that made it profitable, which was turning it basically to a gigantic advertising machine. But all that's not what you came here for. That's just me setting the table for Schmitz. He lasted there until a few years ago. And what eventually came to people think of why he stepped down, it wasn't so much that the company needed new leadership was, you know, there were some whispers within Google about Schmitz's very public open marriage. He married a woman named Wendy Schmidt, who we met at University of California, Berkeley. There were students there. She edited his thesis. They got married, but, and they've been, they still are married. However, Schmidt enjoys a very open marriage. She spends her time in New York as well as Nantucket, but Schmidt seems to like to move from woman to woman and um, not illegal if your wife isn't saying anything. But I think it's sort of in this world where we've seen Jeff Bezos step out of his marriage. We've seen Bill Gates' marriage falling apart. We've seen Elon Musk go through his own sort of marital travails. It's now Eric Schmidt who is showing us, you don't even have to sort of divorce your wife. You just have to have this rather open relationship, which has caused, people think, caused his friction within the company and maybe a reason why Sergey and Larry probably wanted to ease him out and bring in a different leader. Right. I mean, for the record, we are sex positive and love positive here at Airmail. No judgment here on the way that Eric Schmidt chooses to lead his life and evolve with his marriage. But what's interesting here is the timing, right? And the moment that he decided to leave Google and pursue different opportunities because this type of... um, I think what Bill gets at so brilliantly is trying to figure out where personal and professional boundaries are crossed and how those personal issues can become problematic in the workplace. And this is something that you're going to be hearing from us more on because we have another great piece in next week's issue about a a sort of similar like-minded matter. So we'll be following this again. But I mean, there are just some great anecdotes here. Have you ever seen Eric Schmidt in person? Yes. What I was going to say is he's out and about New York. And I mean, I've seen him out and about, Michael. You've seen him out and about. He's very much unabashed about the fact that this is the way he lives his life. And more power to him. It seems that his wife is entirely on board. I was having an interesting conversation about another titan of industry who's married, who recently remarried a gorgeous legend. I'll let you use your imagination on who I'm talking about here. But we were talking about this at dinner. And and I said to the table, I said, you know, at this point in her life, she's probably in her 70s. Does she really need the money? Like, why was she marrying him? It's not for money. And then someone at the table who knew this person said, oh, he's a very charming, dynamic man. I said, really? And I think what I wouldn't have expected that, right? I think you tend to look at the cliches of these rich old guys as being rich old guys, but you forget sometimes that they do have an awful lot of moxie and intelligence and curiosity. And I think Eric Schmidt might not like this piece, but I think Bill actually does a, it's kind of a a flattering portrayal of him because he says Eric does things a little bit differently. He asks different questions. He does things that many men in his position wouldn't do. He seems to have this real sort of, you know, boundless curiosity that has served him well in all sorts of things. And yes, makes him more attractive to women as well. As Bill points out through his interviewing that he might have this swinging life, but uh, he's actually still a tech nerd. And and a friend who traveled with him said, you know, you'd be in some hotel in Asia or wherever, which would be Eric might like find the guys down at the front desk having problems with the the server or something. He's like, oh, I'll give you a hand. And sort of like rolling up his sleeves and going back there. And he wanted to like work on the work on the, the tech problem with these guys. So he's driven, as his friend says as well, he's he's very driven by 
ideas and results and the kind of guy if like he'll wake up that day and decide i'm obsessed with this right now and he'll just pursue that thing uh, which i think is again probably a hallmark of success within silicon valley fascinating you know who i think would really appreciate a guy like well at least a story like eric schmitz someone else we have written about in this week's issue there's a new documentary about her. It's called Lady Boss. And I mean, this is the woman who was the original, she was the original girl boss. She was the original lady boss. She wrote her books. I mean, you talk about the woman who wrote the book on power and sex and women. She wrote books that she, she her books sold more than half a billion copies in 40 countries. And as, as this new documentary reveals, her own story was even more dramatic. And that is Jackie Collins, who created a whole subgenre that we like to think is like these trashy, sexy novels. But when What's fascinating about this documentary that's coming out now is it shows really how savvy she was in sort of creating her career for herself and was one of the early on saying girls should be able to do whatever they want and that it's about girl power and women power. So the documentary comes out next week and just a terrific look at surprising look. I think for me, in some ways, reminded me this piece by Alexandra Hemmingsley remind me almost of it's a period of the 70s, early 80s, Jackie, and of course her sister, Joan Collins, the actress. But almost that sort of, it was rubbing up against that Halston era for me. So if you're kind of find yourself missing that a little bit, check out this piece in the documentary. Yeah. Apparently the documentary makes wonderful use of the archive that Jackie kept throughout her life, her teenage diaries, even video of a tale of an evening spent at a Hollywood house party with Marlon Brando when he was in his 20s. And there are also a lot of personal videos that feature everyone from Roger Moore goofing around at a barbecue to Jackie doting on her baby daughters. Can you imagine a more interesting dinner date than Jackie and Joan Collins? Like the two of them together at a table must have been something to behold. Yeah, I mean, and just, you know, the, the gossip they could spin, right? The tales they could tell. The two of them together, it's like you want to meet those parents, right? Like what did they do to foster and cultivate such incredible talent, different types of talent, but still such incredible talent and empathy and powers of observation in two of their kids. Pretty miraculous. I'd read a book, honestly, all about those types of parents because, you know, the parents of families like that are the Emmanuels, the Fennells, like look at all their talented daughters, the Wares in London, Jesse, Hannah, and um, their brother. Anyway. Oh. Yeah, there, she, there's a there's a there's a moment that that she uh, she writes about in the piece in, in the documentary. You know, like Joan was obviously the more successful first. Jackie, the second born, was in the shadows for part of her life. But in those shadows, we, she was kind of observing everything, right? And it was her discreet presence at all these show business parties. It was where she could observe Joan, and it was Jackie who was able to actually reboot Joan's career by writing these novels, and and that became her game changing roles in the seventies like books, movies like The Stud and The Bitch. But there's a moment in the documentary where Joan explains with apparent sincerity that Jackie has been reincarnated as a fruit fly that follows her around. I love it. I also loved the anecdote about the fact that everyone caricatured Jackie Collins as this ultra glam woman in leopard print wearing Louboutins and diamonds to work every morning. But her daughter, Rory, said, we used to laugh because she wore the same outfit of black trousers, a black t-shirt, and a black shirt whenever she was writing. She even teased us for being fancy when we had our nails done. But when she turned herself into, quote, Jackie Collins, there was something almost magical about it. Speaking of writers, there's also a, there's a great little piece this week by Clementine Ford, one of our 
editors about Ernest Hemingway's granddaughter, who, Ernest Hemingway's granddaughter, Mariel Hemingway, the Golden Globe and Academy Award nominated actress, who, it turns out, isn't your dream as a writer to have a Hemingway blurb or promote your book? Well, now, for $25,000, Mariel Hemingway will do that for you. This is completely wild. Tell us more. Well, she's part of this. There's this ebooks, you know, around 2012, ebooks helped start off a self publishing boom. And some of the companies, many companies that work with these authors to bind and digitize and sell their works, one of them is Mindster Media, which in March added a new service for authors, an endorsement for A. Hemingway in the form of a forward and a 90 second promotional video. So she'll sort of stop like, Hi, I'm Mariel Hemingway. And she'll give you her credentials as I just did. And then she's like, I'm also the granddaughter of world renowned writer Ernest Hemingway. And then she sort of will just plug your book for you. So it's a very straight up pay to play by a Hemingway. But, you know, I bet you, Ashley, you're probably more, you can't just believe that like your favorite actress from Manhattan by Woody Allen is doing this. Isn't that crazy? I mean, she was so brilliant. She's a, a brilliant actress, by the way. I mean, she's brilliant in a lot of movies, but she was totally unforgettable in Manhattan. And she admits, Clem interviews her, this is so brilliant. She says, quote, Grandpa would probably come through the grave and slap me in the face or something if he knew about the work that she was doing. And then she said, please don't write that. What I'm trying to say is that I'm not riding on his coattails. Well, what exactly are you riding on then? Look, everyone has to make a living, but this is basically cameo for book plugs. Okay. That's what it is. And it's kind of a sad day uh, in terms of the literary world, Michael, but I guess everything is commercialized these days. But you know what it made me think about? I watched the Ken Burns documentaries on Hemingway and something I learned in there that I'd never known before is his second wife, who we married, was very wealthy. And it was his second wife's uncle, I believe it was, who basically funded the whole lifestyle that became the myth of Ernest Hemingway, funded the safaris in Africa, funded the whole place down in Florida and the fishing and the whole. And it was, he was really kind of, the, without that money, in some regards, which he didn't earn himself, I doubt Hemingway would have been able to sort of basically, I mean, in some ways be, be living this influencer lifestyle of the 1930s, you know, because he became then doing all these adventurous things, which were photographed and, and shot on movies in those famous right over his day. So maybe he, he was selling himself in some way too, or taking money for, for things as well. Actually, speaking of big game hunts and Africa, and, and speaking of this summer, travel is back. People are going places again, right? And you've got a great piece this week about what I call the personal travel ninja. And in this post-pandemic world, I was like, oh, great, I got a plane ticket. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. And what they're finding out, and just like the news this week as well, was showing like American Airlines is canceling flights again because there's all this, they don't want to overpromise things. There's also these shifting rules in many countries in Europe. And you've got, I think, a really indispensable piece this week on the return of the travel agent or the high-end travel booker, right? Yeah. I mean, Michael, I think for people in our generation, especially those of us that are journalists that pay attention to these things, like I would never have thought of using a travel agent for anything. I thought I can do this myself. I read travel and leisure. I read, you know, all the UK papers and the US papers and who needs to pay that premium? Well, it turns out this year, travel agents are coming off of the least productive year, essentially in the history of the business. And they're busier than ever. And for very good reason, it turns out that the services that they offer are expanding by the minute, because frankly, who can make sense all of this? You know, the COVID tested flights, the quarantine requirements that are applied and then abandoned on a whim 
countries opening to foreigners and then closing very abruptly. So many travelers, you know, really need to have an expert in their corner who can help them navigate all of this stuff. So I spoke with a couple travel agents who cover different sectors of the market. One of the most fascinating women I talked to is Jacqueline Sienna India, who's a Los Angeles-based owner and operator of a concierge service called Sienna Charles. These people don't go by travel agent, really, right? It's That's a very dated terminology for what they do. She works primarily with families whose net worth is over $100 million. And she said she's never been busier. In the past few weeks, she says business has come back 300%. And it was fascinating to speak with her because she said, you know, the assistance of the super rich who used to handle some of this stuff, they're going full throttle because they're dealing with new homes, new planes, new everything that was acquired during the pandemic. As we know, the super rich just spent an awful lot of money and they didn't have the time and space to be dealing with a lifestyle. So Jacqueline and her team are coming in and dealing with not only the far-flung trips in Uzbekistan, but also helping them get dinner reservations and planning intricate parties for them at their homes in the Hamptons and Malibu and all over the place. So it was very interesting to speak with her. And one thing she said that really stuck with me is that pre-pandemic, the 0.1 percenters were not going to the major European cities in the height of summer. You know, they weren't staying at the Hotel de Russie or Le Maurice in Paris. This year, those hotels are completely full. She said that an entry-level room at one of the top hotels in a European city is about 1,700 euros a night because the flush millennials and Gen Zers who saved a lot of money during the pandemic are going to Europe and they are going all out. So those hotels are totally booked and the high-end villas are incredibly expensive, but there is room in the market for those who want to go and let's say rent an apartment somewhere or do something a little bit different, a little bit off the grid. But I think too, what's also from a you know nuts and bolts perspective is in this world now where I think many of our listeners are not in the 0.001%, you're still flying commercial. And if even if you're flying business or first class and commercial, I hope you are, but you're going to Europe or other places, there's connecting flights now. Back in the day, your flights were really canceled. If they were, you but I think the advantage of having a travel agent or however they want to label themselves these days is an app can't rebook you if you're stranded someplace. You have this the, the growth in this, the rebound in this service now is because you can call the person like, my flight just got canceled or the hotel is shutting down because of COVID help. And then you've got, you know, you've got your Mrs. Moneypenny back in London or wherever, who's kind of organizing it for you and helping you and being that, that pair of helping hands for you, right? I spoke with a wonderful woman named Emily Fitzroy. She has a firm called Bellini Travel that's based in London. And she only special, she only does Italy, but she specializes in these really kind of cool off the radar experiences there. And she said that she never used to advise people to go to Florence or Venice because the cruise ships were stopping and bringing thousands of people a day into these little streets. But she said this year for the first time, she's telling people to go to Portofino because it turns out that it's not going to be overridden with tourists, at least not this particular moment because of the UK quarantine laws. So she said very few of her UK clients are traveling this summer for obvious reasons. And they're not going to have a lot of people from Australia and New Zealand but they are anticipating a fair amount of tourists from the U.S. So I think the demographics of tourism are going to change this summer, but it it still might be a really good time to go and see the Chinturettos, for example, in Venice. So we're, we'll be following this and we'll report back. But for the moment, if you're going to Europe, uh, have a good time and enjoy the art. You know, speaking of uh, Europe and Venice, I just saw a piece this morning 
came over the wires that the United Nations Art Heritage Agency, UNESCO, has said it's going to examine a proposal to put Venice on its endangered list if the city does not issue a permanent ban on cruise ships docking there. And if you saw, but like a, a couple of weeks ago, the Venetians were caught by surprise when a cruise liner, one of those gigantic, like, you know, 12, 14 story cruise liners for the first time since the pandemic began, sailed back into the lagoon there. And it just seen as unsustainable but they're so they're basically putting pressure on uh, venice to 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 ban those those big cruise ships from coming in and, and not basically putting so much stress on the lagoon that would be quite a good development all right michael well before we head off into the sunset please Anything at all to recommend? You know, I'm going to recommend something that is a very summer-appropriate movie. It's set in the summer. It's got a warm, sexy, fun vibe. And it's a, it's a vibe that also is going to make you fall in love with what you love about New York, the streets, the cultures, the possibilities, and the potential here. And that is the film version of the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical In the Heights, which is out now. If you haven't watched it, super recommended for the next couple of weeks. Just turn it on it's, it's with the family. It's The songs are great. Cast is fantastic in their performances. And it's just one of those musicals and movies that makes you fall in love with New York and makes you so glad to be out on the streets again and seeing people. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm dying to see it. Highly recommend it. All right. Well, there's a new memoir called Crying in H Smart that I just love. It's written by Michelle Zauner, who is best known for being the singer and guitarist behind the name Japanese Breakfast. I don't know if you've ever heard her albums, but they're wonderful. And this is her first memoir. And it's just incredibly well-written. It's a first-person account of growing up. It's like just a fascinating description of being a Korean-American and some of the challenges that she's encountered and some of the victories that she's achieved. And she has an incredible relationship with her mother, and she talks about this in detail, but it's just a very heartbreaking, heartwarming, thoughtful book written by a, one of the biggest musical talents of our day, I think. So Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zauner. All right, done. All right, Michael. Well, on that note, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us.